everyone. The Inside Influence team and I are taking an eight-week sabbatical this winter, or summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, to generally reset, recalibrate and refill our creative tanks. Now, for many of us, myself included, that means traveling across the world to see family members where it has been far too long between hugs. To keep you fueled while we're gone, fear not, we have traveled back through the archives, back through time, and pulled out four of our favorite Inside Influence episodes of all time. Now, I can also hand on heart say that each of these four episodes has, in some way, radically changed how I now show up, lead, and influence. If you're new to the Inside Influence crew, enjoy the ride. If you are a long-time listener, these are definitely conversations that are worth listening to for a second time. Stay safe, and we will see you back with our brand new season in August. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which, as usual, I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, have you ever been in the situation where you had a limited amount of time to pitch an idea? A moment where you knew you had to immediately capture attention, establish credibility, and build a compelling enough argument in a short window of time, and that your ability to do so would literally make or break what comes next. I've I've found myself on both ends of that situation more times than I can count over the years, having both made and received hundreds of pitches, some successfully, and some so unsuccessful that I still have difficulty thinking about them without literally shuddering. But the ones that did go well, the ones that ultimately ended up changing the course of my businesses and career, and the ones where I have been in the privileged position of being able to change the course of someone else's business or career, those successful ones all, when I think about it, had a few things in common. And the largest of those is that they all had an epic first two to three minutes. So when someone sent me a book recently called The Three Minute Rule, say less to get more from any pitch or presentation, I was all in. That book was written by my next guest, Brant Pindovic. He's an award-winning film director, veteran television producer, keynote speaker, top-rated podcast host, Rob Lowe being literally the last one that I listened to, and columnist for Forbes. With over 20 years of experience in producing, creating, and directing household TV shows and movies, Brant is widely recognized as one of the greatest creative leaders in Hollywood. Having given over 100-plus successful film and television pitches in his career, he learned that if he didn't get them in the first three minutes, chances are he wouldn't get them at all. He's taken those business and storytelling lessons and developed a proven blueprint for leaders wanting to position their message with impact. 
So in today's conversation, we delve into the mechanics of what it takes to get your ideas over the line, including why three minutes is the key to creating an ultra concise, ultra compelling pitch for any idea, product, service, or company. The fire alarm test. If somebody pulled the fire alarm after three minutes of your presentation or sales pitch, have you done enough to make people want to come back and hear more? And I would actually add to this because in my experience, at least six or seven times out of 10, the fire alarm doesn't go off. But what does happen is you walk into the room and, and someone pulls you to one side and says, look, I know, I know we said you had X amount of time, but actually I'm really sorry. Now you have Y amount of time, usually significantly less. The four core questions every successful pitch needs to address. Why being passionate about everything often means that you are credible about nothing. How to close with a hook that guarantees action and the difference between situational doubt and self-doubt. In particular, why one of those mindsets, and I'll leave you to guess which one, is self-defeating and the other is self-preserving. So, if now is the time to get others on board with your ideas, product, company or vision, especially those who potentially hold the power to make it happen, then this episode is definitely for you. Enjoy my conversation with the master of the pitch, Brant Pindavik. Welcome to the podcast, Brant Pindavik. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Now, we're both struggling a little bit with vocal cords today. Yes. So this is going to be one sexy-sounding podcast. That's right. I'm, lay- I'm bringing it right down low for you, <laughs> right, in- right down in there. Just listen to it at nighttime. Let me tell you a little bit about my book now. Let's talk. <laughs> Just you and me. Oh, so romantic. Yeah. Now, I'm going to kick off um, with a new question I've started asking people recently because it just fascinates me that the type of ideas that stop people in their tracks and the type of ideas that just seem really interesting but fall into nothing. What's the most influential idea you've heard recently that hit you and it's stuck with you? Oh, that's, you know, that's a good question. Um, I think it would be, you know, my, my partner is a author named Oren Claff who wrote a book called Pitch Anything and he has a new one out called Flip the Script. And in it, he was telling me about the idea of playing fetch the rock with your client or your buyer and how you never do that. And I didn't really understand that until we had this conversation. And it was the idea that, you know, the people, the person who's the buyer has all the power and they'll, they'll send you to go fetch different ideas and different versions and try different things and continue to bring them different elements to make the sale while they compare and contrast everything else. And in TV, I used to do that every day. I was trying to sell a TV show as the buyer would say, oh, but we wonder about the casting this way. So then I'd go do it this way. Or I wonder if we could find a host that might fit our brand better. Then I'd be go chasing down a host, you know, and I, and it was always like, could you fetch me a blue rock? I think a blue rock would be great. Oh, I just talked to the board. You know, they're really into polka dot rocks right now. If you just had one of those, that would really push this over the edge. Ooh, but what if we added a purple rock to this? And the idea that you just go keep fetching a rock. And you just train the buyer that you're needy and that you'll do anything and it just lowers your value. And I was just like, oh, my God, as a guy who's, you know, relatively good at being a sales guy and a foremost expert in this world to have something like that that I didn't understand that I was doing subconsciously was was a real shock. And it's wow, it's totally changed the way I deal with things. 
I'm I'm sat here just laughing to myself because I've just come back off holiday with my family and my three-year-old daughter anyone you know that's got young children will know that they they just want to be in the pool just all day all day in the pool and eventually you get to a point where you know your tolerance for splashing at the shallow end of the pools really gets lower and my husband and I would literally play go chase the rock with her like literally we would get a rock throw it in the pool and she'd have to go and chase the rock and it was nothing else than to just keep her busy and that's what the buyer is doing to you and so how do you tell the difference between a rock and a you know a genuine um a genuine query that's going to make the difference between whether someone buys from you or they don't well i think the main thing is you you need to lay out in a deal ready format when your proposal's ready like it has to be deal ready that's the other thing I, i've been getting so much better at also is like if they have enough of the details they either want to work with you or they don't they're either ready to pull the trigger or they're not and you fetching a bunch of rocks over and over again is just putting you on a shelf is what they want to do they want to get as much info about the features and benefits as they possibly can and then they're going to put you on the shelf where they go get the, the features and benefits from everybody else and at some point it crosses over from helping to make the sale and it turns into being needy and detracting from the odds of making the sale. And it's, it's been a bit of a game changer. So, And how do you, I'm just going to drill into this a little bit further because I think from my career, this is, has also been huge and hearing it articulated that way is, is amazingly beneficial to me. If you feel like you're being sent out to chase rocks, if you feel like someone's throwing a rock in a pool just to keep you busy while they go and, as you said, compare and contrast everybody else, what do you – how do you prevent that? Do you feel this is happening? Do you have a line? Do you have a, a set yeah. way forwards? There's a couple of big ones that work really well. The first one is is like, you know, I've heard this before. What's really going on here? You know, that doesn't feel like you really need me to redo the pro forma again. I feel like there's something going on here. And then they'll the, – the, your buyer will know there's something – there's an issue and they'll admit that. And the other one is is like, hey, if this isn't going to work for you or this doesn't work, that's fine. Like, you know. I'm easy to get rid of. And I always say that like, you don't even have to reply to my email or like, you don't even have to call me back. Like you can just hang up. I'm easy to get rid of if this isn't right for you. If this, if you don't think this is going to move to the next level, um, because you need, you know, some accountability, right? Because at the end of the day, the buyers have such a, an overwhelming level of power on you. And the more you play into that, the less you will be able to, to push them into making real decisions. And there's just no point in, again, in chasing the rock over and over again because the, the initial decision to work together, and I use that as a broad term, usually is ready to go at some point and, you, and it doesn't do you any good to continue chasing it down the hill. You'll spend so much more time on those accounts for so long and maybe wrangle one or two of them than if you could just get rid of those people and get it out of there faster, you'd get so much more done. I'm writing that down. I'm easy to get rid of. I'm, oh man, I use that so much now because people ask me like, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting and speaking and they'll ask me to do this and how much is this and what's this. And I just, you know, really quickly, if I get on, if I, you know, it's not so bad if I'm not on the phone, I have my team do it. But if I'm in the middle of that, I just say, Hey, listen, if that doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. I'm easy to get rid of. You don't even have to pretend you could literally just hang up the phone. I, I won't be offended. I, I'm good. You know, and they'll be like, no, 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 no. That's totally, uh, it's in the range. Absolutely. You know, there's such a strength and gravity to that non-anxious presence. You know, I have no anxiety attached to this. Yeah. And what, what you have to get over is the idea that you are leaving something out or you're losing something. You're not, it, it, it doesn't change the fact if you just basically say like, Hey, I need some sort of 
answer or I'm not going to put, fetch that rock. You've got enough now. Like it's not going to change the end answer. It's not. It's not the way it works. You know, asking for that and getting and 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 being more assertive in the idea that I've given you enough to make a decision. I'm I'm not going to just play around while you shop around. This is not Amazon. You know, it's like that's not the way this works. I have a business. I have to run stuff. And I and I I used to do this every day in my TV career, every single day, just begging for the buyer at the network to give me some information so I could run around and try to make the show better for them. And it was like it, it was such a waste of time, colossal. Yeah, not only that, but it dilutes your sense of value, which then prevents you exactly. from getting the next deal the next yeah. day. Yep, exactly. I love that. I'm, I'm, go I'm going to keep moving, but I, I could stay with that all day. I know, we could be there all day. <laughs> um, now, you you know, you are, as anyone that, that heard you listen to the introduction would know, you know, you're an award-winning documentary film director, a veteran te television producer, you know, you've worked on shows Biggest Loser, MasterChef, and... But I didn't want to start there. I actually wanted to start with a moment that I read about in one of your articles. And it was a moment in your parents' basement and what went on to become a framed napkin. Yeah. So it's talk a good to one. us. Yeah. Because uh, that to me, you know, you start at the winning end of the career. It, I mean, that's really important. You've learned a lot to get there. But starting in the moment where you know, those sliding doors moment, there's so much to be learned from those moments. So talk to me about that. So, you know, I, I was in Hollywood. I was trying to sell this TV show that had made me bankrupt. Basically, I was living in my parents' basement suite with my two-year-old child, my wife. And I came back from Los Angeles and it had gone really, really well. And, you know, I was telling, you know, people, oh, I met this person, I met that person. And, and my dad was like, okay, um, yeah, so where's the signed contract? Oh, well, yeah, you know, it's being worked on right now with the agents. Oh, okay, so we're, but where's the check? Oh, yeah, I don't have that yet. So, so they don't sign contracts and they don't do checks? What's going on here? I was like, yeah, but it's just, it's LA. They do it differently, right? It was just this whole drain. And my wife and I went out to dinner and I was like, I want to move to Los Angeles because like that was the, the most at home I'd felt in maybe ever. And it was real and it's going to happen. And I think good things. And my wife, God bless her, had already been down this road many times. Like, hey, let's move to Saskatchewan, open a bar. Hey, let's do this, right? None of them have worked out well. So she was just in the mode of like, I can't do this again. Like we're not, we're not, we're not running around moving, trying different things. And I remember saying, okay, I need, well, let's talk about what would have to happen that we'd be okay moving to another country. We were in Canada at the time. So I remember it so specifically is that I unfolded this napkin and I had to ask the waitress for a pen and she, all she had was this red felt pen kind of thing. And we basically just drew a map of what would have to happen that we would be committed to moving to Los Angeles. And it was like, okay, well, the show could sell to this person or this person could lend me money or I could get a job or NBC might want this. And you just laid out all of these pieces and it gave us both a little clarity, it gave me some hope that, okay, if I can hit some of these targets, I could convince my wife to move down there. And it gave her some, a little bit of comfort in that, the fact that like I had been doing things so by the seat of my pants and fly by night and every other cliche phrase you can come up with that, okay, if you actually get some of these things in place, then maybe we can look at this seriously. And so I don't know why, but I ended up keeping that napkin. And I had ended up having it framed and now it hangs in my office today. And, you know, that just feeds in so beautifully 
with something I've been thinking a lot about recently, and that's the role of boundaries in trust. Yeah. Because it's, you know, when it comes to trust, there's, there's blind trust, there's blind faith, there's, you know, ongoing trust where you just keep going and keep hoping. And then there's this other kind of trust, which comes from sitting with somebody such as you, you, you did with your wife and going, okay, what boundaries need to be in place here? What things would need to exist in order for this to move forward, in order for us to take another leap on this? And then you have the beginnings of a conversation that can take two parties forward as opposed to, you know, one and the other one just sitting still with their fingers crossed. Yeah. But, you know, I the, the problem is you also have to go into that with some real honest commitment to it. Now, I, I know just I know who I was 20 years ago and I was just getting my wife to agree to something. And if it didn't work out as according to those napkin diagrams, I would have came to her with more napkin diagrams. I would have kept coming to her with other stories. Like that was the pattern of our lives even at that young age was I just – I wanted what I wanted and I was just trying to get her to go along with it. And so at that age and in the state I was in, it wasn't as earnest and I got really lucky that it worked out and I didn't have to – play that card because I had already played that card and lost it so many times that we, you know, my wife and I were at the end of our rope at that particular moment where it was like, I just can't believe you anymore. You know, you think this is the the moment that makes all of the stuff we've been through work. You met Jimmy Miller or you did this or this is happening. And she's like, I've heard you say this a hundred times and it hasn't worked out. So it's like, I've lost the ability to just go along with what you believe. Like she wasn't saying, I don't believe you don't believe it. I just don't believe that you have a filter of reality. And she's a hundred percent right about that. So, you know, we got a little bit lucky. I got a little bit lucky on that, that I ended up being able to deliver on what I thought, but it's really helpful if you're actually a little more honest than I would have been at the time. And what would that have looked like if you had have been? You know, I think I would have talked a little bit more about my fears and frustrations of staying where we were. I think I probably would have talked a little bit more like this is what I need to do. I can never I'll never be able to be an average person in this small town in Canada just trying to figure out a normal job that's never going to work and and so I'm pouring my heart and soul into these big ideas and these big options because I'm just looking for a way out. And if it isn't this one, there'll be another one and it'll, this will continue for the rest of our lives. So if this one doesn't work, we're going to have real problems. That's probably the conversation. Now I would never have that conversation with anybody because I'm (laughs) so terrified of conflict and that's not the way I do things. But that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful piece of, of self-reflection there. I mean, there's, there's the knowing what we need to do and there's the doing of it. Right. But you know, it starts with the, it starts with the awareness to go, actually, if I'd have done that 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 would have been a better beginning now that now as you said you got whether you got lucky I, I don't really believe in the word lucky but you very soon after that you know you you got the agreement you pitched and you won um and because we're here today to talk about pitching let's let's go into that a little bit so that particular pitch the pitch that changed everything what was different about was there anything different about that pitch or was it just a question of numbers that you just kept trucking You know what it was is that I had been in – I had been in people's living rooms trying to raise money for a company that if I didn't get a check for $5,000, I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage. 
or I wouldn't be able to eat. So I developed a very sophisticated system of being incredibly desperate and not letting anybody know that because I, I knew instinctively and, and I experienced that if people know how badly you need the sale, they will instinctively understand that you'll say anything to get it. And so I developed that skill to be able to maintain a little objectivity in that pitch. And I had done so much work up in Canada on that particular pitch for that television show that I had funded myself that when I got to the United States and I was in with the big networks, it was so much more filled out and so much more depth to it than anybody else at the time was pitching TV ideas. It was They were just bringing it in you know, on a piece of paper, here's an idea. We're going to take 16 single women and we'll have them compete for one guy and we'll see how that works. And it's like, oh, all right, let's do 10 episodes. Like that was the kind of Wild West mentality at the time. And what I was pitching was so well thought out and had been filmed in Canada and was laid out perfectly. So it helped that door. But what was interesting was is my agent at the time, who is still my agent today, said to me, you know, Brant, that pitch was so well done and thought out and thorough. You, th- that needs to be your calling card. For every pitch you take from now on has to be at that level. It has to be that well put together. And that will be your reputation. And he held me to that. And so very quickly, I had the reputation of being the guy who really did great pitches for ideas and shows. Even if you didn't like it, even if you didn't buy it, it was going to be a great experience having me in the room. I'm going to have it thought out. I've laid all the details out. I've put a ton of work into it. I'm very passionate about it. And people just gravitated towards that. So the next logical question is, what was, the, what was that pitch? What was the pitch that changed, changed the tide? Let's see. So that one was the original show was called The Ultimate Party Quest. And it was basically running around to bars and nightclubs, playing funny games, finding the most fun and exciting people in the country. And I had twisted it into sort of a survivor for young, fun people kind of pitch. And we ended up selling that show to NBC. The the hilarious part is it never got made. We sold it as a pilot. Yeah, we sold it as a pilot. We developed it. They paid me a bunch of money. I got jobs out of it. I moved down to the United States. I partnered with Mark Burnett originally on it. And then it never got made. It just sort of like got lost in the shuffle of regular TV. But by the time that happened – I was already gone. And and what was great is when I moved to this country, I was a guy who sold a network TV show, which there's only so many of those a year that get sold. You know, you're talking like nine, 12 shows a year total. So to be one of those guys in that year, oh, hey, Brant just sold a network TV show. And it's like, whoa, with no partners and like that, it it uh, it drew the the industry towards me instantly. And then so by the time that the show went away, I had already had my hand around a whole bunch of other branches and pulled a whole bunch of good stuff towards me that I could let that one go because I didn't need any more. I already sold a bunch of other shows. So the timing on those things worked pretty well. And there's something fundamental in that, isn't there, where you you only need one win. Like once you've got one under your belt, you then get to leverage that. You then get to go to somebody else and say, well, you know, like, you know, after I went over here – We've done this. We're in the process of doing this. Like it's that first one. It's that first yes. Okay, I'm going to blow your mind here. Go on. Okay. the The secret is, the win doesn't need to be as big as you think it does. Mm, walk me okay. through that. So, what people hesitate in their lives and where they where they struggle is they don't leverage what they've done successfully to move to where they want to be. They think they need to wait till they get 
one more TV credit, one more written thing. I need one more better job. I need, an, I need another degree. I need to do this for another two years. I need to be more successful here. I can't do this because all those other people are more successful. And the truth is, is that you're the only one who judges it at that level. The expertise, the person who people are going to take seriously, the person who can make this happen is the person who actually stands up, raises their hand and be like, yes, I'm the expert. And so while you're out there thinking, okay, I need one big win and then I'll leverage it to move to where I want to go. The win doesn't need to be as big as you think it is. I do. I actually do quite a bit of transition coaching lately. Um, I think just because of my transition from like the day-to-day of entertainment into this business side has been pretty, you know, pretty out there and people know about it. And it's, I think people don't understand how valuable the skills they've collected and the experiences they've collected are in the real world. They devalue them for themselves and don't value them the way the world will value them. I think also we, we, we get so caught up in our own expertise, you know, that we know what we're so in our little world that we know what sounds impressive to us and to the other people in the know in our world. But yeah. to everybody else, um, you reminded me of a very specific example. You know, I've won a couple of awards in my career and I've been nominated for a few. And somebody said to me recently, they said, why don't you mention the fact that you were nominated for this particular award? And I was like, well, you know, why on earth would I mention that? I didn't win. <laughs> why why right. would I mention it? And they said, because it's, it's quite a prestigious award to be nominated for. Like it, it takes something to be nominated for that award. And, you know, it wouldn't even have occurred to me. And I see people doing that, you know, you, the very fact that you were given an opportunity in a space, people, people recognize that as a source of credibility. Yeah. And I think it's just, you have to be, it's more important to spend the time preparing the leverage for the credibility than it is to go get the credibility. Cause a lot of people have a lot of credibility and success, but they don't do anything with it other than the one industry that they're in. And like there's a thousand television producers that have produced more shows, better shows, are better, more successful. Like that's just the way the world is. But yeah, I'm the one with the best-selling book. You're not because I'm the one who put up his hand and said like I'm going to go do this. And it was really hard and really like very filled with self-doubt and and anxious about that because it's like, oh my God, I'm now representing this about myself and I barely feel it. But it's like the person who can push through that and stand up and go through that is like, oh, right, I'm the guy. Now I'm the guy on the list with the book. And that's a big deal because it, it just requires you to take that leap and be like, yeah, my skills are valuable in a lot of other areas. And it speaks to one of the most fundamental myths of influence, I think, which is influence is something, the myth is that influence is something that you receive. You know, the sky's open, the angels sing, uh-huh, uh-huh. and that's like a beam of sunlight hits your head and you have, you know, you have been bestowed influence or credibility. And actually, it's something you stand up and claim. That's right. And the, the people that stand up and claim it, who are willing to own, and also willing to own what they don't know. So it's not a, it's not a bluffing but to willing to stand up and, and own what you have done, what you do know, with generosity and honesty, that's the difference between credibility and influence and those that, that aren't willing or aren't able or don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, it's a huge piece and that, that is so hard. And I think that's, you know, so listen, social media is it's really confused what people consider influence because we coined the phrase influencer. So now all of those things have been sort of like lumped together and they're very different in how influence actually happens and who has influence and who you have influence over and what the numbers are on your social media account. A hundred percent. There's a difference between influence and popularity. 
They're right. two very separate ends of the scale. So what, let's go back to the pitch, moving, moving the car back to the pitch. So you wrote this, this incredible book, The, the Three-Minute Rule. And since that moment, that moment that we talked about, you've given or taken more than 10,000 pitches in the course of your Hollywood career. And the book itself, I know, was designed as a guide to creating you know, a concise, ultra-compelling pitch for ideas, products, services, or companies. But let's just start with the most obvious question. Why, why three minutes? Where did three minutes come from? Well, there's actually some science behind it. I mean, for, for me, it took place because in our edit bay, there was a rule called the three-minute rule, which was no tape to pitch any TV show could be longer than three minutes. We just knew from doing it long enough and editing TV shows and, and the process of an audience is that is the decision-making sort of spectrum is that you take in information. If you lead your audience incredibly well with a really good story and connect the dots on information, you can lead them through long enough to get a lot of valuable information. And that's about three minutes is about all you're going to get. And I do this in some of my seminars where I'll have people come and pitch their favorite movie, the movie they know better than anything in the world. They've seen it 50 times. Tell me every single thing about it. And that takes about three minutes because that's all you really retain in the process. And so the three-minute rule when it came to simplifying your message and finding the most important statements of value was looking at the study of approach motivation and why we're driven to be drawn to certain brands, people, ideas, and trying to get your audience to delay their initial yes or no. Because that's what happens. Someone comes to pitch or present you something and you're making that yes or no in your head sometimes in the first 10 seconds. But if you use information correctly and you lead them very cleanly, crisp, compelling, you can actually get them to, to delay that initial yes or no for about three minutes if you're lucky. And if you do that and put all your information in that initial three minutes, you'll be more likely to get them the information they want and lead them to the conclusion that you want. And – you know, that's such a counterintuitive idea because yeah. the oh, amount of, I know. yeah, the amount of times I hear, you know, just, if you get me as much time as possible, I just need as much time as possible. And that idea that you don't need as much time as possible, you actually just need three minutes. And if you nail, yeah. I was with a group recently and they were, we were talking about pitches and I said, I just, actually, I was crueler than you are. I was like, I just want the, in the first two minutes, I will make up my mind whether I continue listening. That's right. So you give me your first two minutes. And that idea of making that as compelling as possible and nailing that, just absolutely nailing it. Well, I, I start with people, when I work with them, I start with them with what I call the information pyramid. And it's like, you need to pass the first level before you go to the next level or the funnel or whatever you want to call it. But it's like, first, I need you to pitch this to me in five words, five, six words. Like explain what it is where it's, if I was doing a TV show, I'd say it's amazing race for the smartest people in the world. And it's like, okay, that's like five or six words. You kind of get it. It's like, oh, it's a competition race format. And it's going to be really, really smart people doing it as opposed to those idiots that do the race now and can't put Ikea furniture together, right? Then I have them, all right, you've earned, you've got five. You've now earned 20 more words. Now you can do it in 25. Go ahead. Fill in the bank. Then, and if you can train yourself to do that step by step, oh, I got some extra words. Now I'll tell you that it's MIT grads and Boeing engineers competing in teams of three. You know, and so it's like now I'll build a little bit more of the information and then, okay, great. 25 words, that was great. Now you can have 50 words. Go ahead and fill that piece out. And what you do is you slowly build the pieces, but it forces you to decide what is the most important 
piece of information. If you could only say three sentences, what would you say? That's it. And when you build that, you're like, oh, by the time you get to three minutes, you're like, oh my God, I've said it all so cleanly. I've put all the information in there. It leads one step to the other. The audience sort of follows that roadmap. And it's that's also counterintuitive because people, you know, it's a common assumption that you think that you start with simplicity and then you build on you build in complexity. And actually, the most influential people that I've ever met that their true superhuman power is that they can take something that's complex and make it simple. That's you right. Know, simple simplicity is the end result. It's the goal. You know, that's the superpower you're trying to build here. Yeah, simple is the new sexy. S- and with so our voices, like, like that goes with it. Yes, simple is the new sexy. <laughs> so I want to talk about the four questions. So you know we're talking about we're talking about three minutes, and then you know how do you how do you structure that three minutes? How do you start thinking about that three minutes? And you've said that there are four four core questions. Yeah, that you need that to you cover. build anything through the filter. It's called the WAC method, which is basically W H A C. Question number one is what is it? Question number two is how does it work? Question number three is are you sure? And question number four is, can you do it? And the reason why you do it in that order is because the way human beings make decisions, we do it in a, in a, in a sort of three-step process. First, we conceptualize, then we contextualize, then we actualize. So first, we have to understand what the concept is that we're dealing with, looking at, hearing. Then we act, then we, when we start to contextualize, we put it in context to us. How can I use this? How is this relevant to me? Where can I be involved? And then we actualize, okay, what's the price? How can I get it? Should I talk to my wife? Do I want to bring this to the board? Should we have another meeting? Am I interested in talking further, right? Those are the three sort of decision-making steps. So when you put it in the WAC method, the W is what is it, which is literally what is it? Can you just tell me what it is? And if you've heard somebody pitching and they're droning on, it's what you're saying in your mind. Could you just tell me what this is? Like, could we just stop? What is this? Right? That's the core first one. I'm smiling because I've heard I've heard those pitches so many times. Exactly. The next one is how does it work? Right? What is it? How does it work? That's that's the first two right out of the gate. And how does it work is actually the manifestation of how it actually works. How do you achieve that? Not the success you've had, not the results of your tests or how impressive it is. That's later. It's what like how does it actually work, right? Once you've established those two things, that's the concept for people. Then they want to contextualize it. That's where you go into the are you sure, which is do you have any facts or figures or logic or reason that kind of backs up how this works? That's the part where you bring in those stats and those details. And then those actually have value, size of the marketplace. These kind of things now actually have value. A lot of pitches I see, they want to start with their facts and their figures and the size of the market, you know, the – Uh, industrial electric motor industry is a $49 billion industry. It's like, okay, that's big, but I don't even know what you do yet. Like, why does that matter? Or so it's important to put it in that order. And then can you do it hard for people to understand, but that's like the last thing on the list. Are you able to do this? Have you done this before? When is it available? What do I have to do the process? Like people will solve the problem. Even if you've never done it before, they'll still be interested. And I always use the example of the biggest loser. Like, we pitched the show, the guy who pitched it nailed all those things and then it got to the end. It's like, can you, can you do it? And the answer is no. He wasn't a producer. He was an agent. Never produced a TV show. So it's not like NBC said, oh man, we really love that idea and we think it could really work but you're not a producer so I'm sorry, we're not doing it. It's like, okay, we'll solve that problem. And they hired my company and off we went. But the idea that, that who you are and what you've done and is important 
only has real relevance when people understand the process. And you can put any idea and any pitch, any conversation through that filter. And you'll be like, oh, here's what it is. Here's how it works. Here's how I can tell you this is going to be true. And here's how we make this happen. It's like, damn, I want, that's how, exactly how I want it. That last bit, that can you do it, is that, this is just a question from, from my own experience, is is that where you would put in your recommendations? Because for a lot of people, yeah, you know, they're, they're not there to say, I can do this. They're there to make a recommendation that someone else should do something about something. Yes. Is that where you would put that in? Absolutely. Now, there is a little bit of nuance in this when you have to assess value, right? So it's sometimes it's not completely linear in that. If you have a recommendation on your science thing and Elon Musk says it's the smartest, most advanced thing he's ever seen. Like that isn't, that isn't the, can you do it? That is what it is, right? That's the most valuable thing. What is it? Well, it's something that Elon Musk thinks is the greatest scientific advancement since he invented whatever he's invented, right? Like, oh, okay. That's the most valuable because you, you need to get the most value to them right away. So, but for most people, most times it's pretty simple who you are, your credentials, the details, those only become really valuable after, after people understand what the hell they're talking about. And so the, the next part of this journey, so you've got the, you've got those four questions, which just in and of themselves, by the way, you just took those four questions, press stop on this podcast right now and went and oh worked God. something else around that. That's just, that's enough. So please, forever who's listening, don't, don't get bogged down in, we're going to dive into this further, but don't get bogged down. Just if, even if you stop now, do that. Yep. If you just put four post-its on the wall with those initials and just put the statements or the bullet points about your pitch underneath those four things, your pitch will completely change the way it looks and will come to life and you'll probably be sending me an email saying, oh my God, I love this. Yeah. I was was talking to a marathon runner just yesterday and and we were talking about, you know, first steps and getting overwhelmed by everything that has to happen from a planning, et cetera, et cetera. And, And she said, look, I don't get caught up in it. Just buy the trainers buy the sneakers <laughs> that is literally it stop talking Just buy some sneakers so these are the sneakers buy the sneakers now now let's go let, go to the next level so you have said that for each of those questions there's probably going to be a few iterations of that question they might that might not be the exact question that they ask so for every single one of those four you need to generate some mini questions that might be more similar to the language that they're going to use have i framed yeah, that correct yeah it's listen it's it's really about the statements of value is what i say it's that when you take everything you do and I, and usually i'll have people start with bullet points and then they'll go to statements of value which is simple sentences that describe what you do we are a plumbing company. We repipe entire homes. We don't pull your old pipes out. We only make small holes. It's not a major renovation, right? Now it's like, oh, you can start to feel those things come to life. And then you know what those statements are answering. Is this a statement that tells you what it is or how it works? Here, it's going to go up a front. Is it something that's verifies things, you know, we are guaranteed for 25 years. Okay. That's going to be an, are you sure? So then you get the, once you can get all those separated, you can see them and then you're like, okay, now I know how to frame this properly for people. And you will see it come to life right in front of you. Like it's shocking how well it works. So is it a number of sentences underneath each one of those questions? Is that the best way to, to format that? Yeah. First you start with bullet points are just simple words of everything that goes on. Then you fill those out into state full statements and single sentences. And what it does is like, listen, it feels so simplistic and I know people want to skip it. But I, like I say in the book, if you skip it, you're going to use the same phrases you use now. 
You're going to go to your sort of neuro-linguistic patterns. And you're doing that because you love the information. You love the way it sounds. You love what it means, which I don't blame you. If I knew it the way you knew it, I'd love those things too. But I don't know it yet. I have to come from the beginning to get to the point where you are because you love it and know it intimately. I need to get there. So for me to get to the same level that you are in knowledge and understanding, we got to start from the beginning. Can you tell me what this is? Okay, great. Now, how does that work? Got it. Okay, now how can you verify that? Okay, I see that. How, how do we work together? Uh, now we've got something. There's your, there's your point. Now we move to what's called the engagement phase. Once you get those things out and in the right order, everything changes. Because now people are like, okay, I get it. Now I have some questions. I get it. Let's talk to my boss. You know, like that's what you need. Because otherwise, and everybody's feeling this, it's like is everybody's attention span is so short that they get questions out of order and people are like, I don't really get it. And, or they'll explain something and you just pitch them and you're like, that's not what I, that's not what I pitched. Like, I can't believe they don't understand it. That happens all the time. And I think that also happens sometimes when you pitch too early, you know, when you, when you have a sense of what something could be, but you can't quite articulate it yet. And you go in and you pitch too early. And I've done that so many times. Well, I can imagine because extroverted people are really bad at doing that. That's what we do. Because we think we don't need to do the work on the information. We can use our personalities and our dynamic style to overpower that. And I actually have a better time in my training and working with CEOs and whatnot that are more introverted personalities, scientists, and biotech nerds. Like those guys actually do my system really well because they're like, great, I don't have to put on a certain tie or pretend that I like public speaking. I can just deliver the information really cleanly. They love that. Whereas the big personality types are like, yeah, 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 I got it. I got it. And then they want to, they want to push past the actual work and they want to razzle dazzle. And that's what you mean. Like pitch a little early before you've done the work to get it laid out properly. And in today's world, it just doesn't work. People don't want you to razzle dazzle them. You're not selling anybody anything. People will buy, but they will not be sold today. And also it's, it's not their job. It's not their job to fill in the blanks. It's not their job to imagine what it could be. It's not their job. You know, it's your job. And some of the most, you know, I look back at the most cringeworthy moments of my career when you just, you can't even think about it. It just makes, you know, even now my shoulders, my shoulders are going <laughs> yeah. up. The most cringeworthy moments are the moments where, you know, I went in too early and I put it on them to imagine what this could be before I had really done the work to articulate it in a compelling way. And yeah, you know, it's not their job. It is your job. Now, talk to me about starting, about the the opening, having a powerful opening. Yeah, I, it's funny because lately I've been getting so many requests for that and the idea of that. And, and I, when I have people send me their pitches, it's like probably the one thing that I see people making mistakes now that I didn't see before. Because before I was, I was you know, very specific on who I worked with and it came through certain channels. Now I get, you know, people coming from all over the place. So I see more things, which has opened my eyes to some stuff. And the opening is the way I describe in the book. It's the reason for being, it's basically to explain the audience why they're there, why you are there, what should they be feeling and thinking as they start to hear your pitch. And I liken it to the way Disney, you know, Bambi's mom didn't need to die at the beginning of the movie, but they kill Bambi's mom in the first 90 seconds so you know exactly how to feel, so you know exactly what Bambi's going through, now we can start the story. It has nothing to do with the story, but now we can start the story. 
And the reason for being is a similar type story, which basically says like, here's how I got here today. You know, you somehow you got involved, whatever this pitch or business is, there must be a reason why you think it's that great. Right. And the story for the reason being is when you thought it was a great idea, kind of vibe. But what a lot of people will do is they'll try to wedge their hook of their story in there. And I talk a lot about how to find the hook of your story and what's the most compelling element. And you can't start with that. You don't want to start with a grand conclusion or a big statement. You know, this new system is going to revolution ways the way that healthcare is done in the world. It's like, yeah, it's not really going to work. People don't believe you when you say those things. And a lot of people would use that opening to make some big statement about how this product is going to change everything, this, or it solves all these problems. And it's just like, no, I just want to hear why you're there. And to do that, you can set up the world of what they're going to hear next. And it's been, it's a really compelling way to do it. And, and if you do it right, it's, it works incredibly well. And you've called it the, the aha moment as a, as a, just as a yeah. way of thinking about it. You know, what was your yeah. aha moment when you thought, That's right. I need to be here or this needs to be here or there's a problem here yeah. that needs to be addressed? Let me give you a perfect example of one. Um, I just work with a client out of Vancouver. They're a really high tech super complicated software design company that works inside the brains of an electric motor. And you literally have to be a scientist to understand how they do it if if you're in the science world. So I had to, I had to take the company and, and work with the CEO as a strategic advisor to, to build out the pitch and presentation so that investors and manufacturers could understand how their software integrated into their electric powertrain system. So her opening goes like this. This is her reason for being. Uh, my name's Sue Osdemer. I'm the CEO of Xro Communications in in Calgary, Alberta. Now that's strange me even saying that out loud because just six months ago, I had what I would have considered my dream job. I was the CEO of GE Industrial Motors. By anyone's argument, the pinnacle of the industrial motor industry. And for me, I grew up in electric motors. My parents had an electric motor shop. I was winding motors by the time I was 15 and I've dedicated my life to the study and innovation and creative creation of new electric motors. And in that position as, as CEO, I get a lot of companies approaching me. This one company out of Canada kept coming to me. I ignored them mostly. And then one day I uttered a phrase that would change my entire life. And I said to them, show me the technology. And they did. And 30 days later, I had tendered my resignation as the CEO of GE and I had moved my family to Calgary, Alberta to become the CEO of XRO. And let me tell you a little bit about XRO and what we do. So it's about 45 seconds. She doesn't tell you that it's the greatest technology she's ever seen in her life. She doesn't tell you it's going to revolutionize the way the electric motor industry is done. She doesn't tell you that it can make your company bazillions of dollars, that everything else is obsolete. She's just telling you her reason for being. And in that, it's like, hey, I was one of the most prominent electric motor CEOs in the world and what I saw caused me to do this. So now let's talk about what's going on. And as an audience, you know right away, okay, I have no idea what this is yet. I haven't even been pitched, but I know there's some technology coming. I know it's obviously got some credibility around it because this woman knows what she's talking about. Let me hear that pitch. That is such a good example of how to set up a room so they feel a certain way without telling them, without trying to force your ideas on them. Um, and that's a really powerful way to set up the pitch if you if you get a chance to make a presentation like that. That 
I mean, that just deserves a moment silence just for itself because there's so much in that 45 seconds. And it actually leads me, the next question I had for you, which fits perfectly into that is, you know, a lot of people think that the idea needs to be the hero of the journey. And sometimes, sometimes it does, but often I find I'm interested in your ideas. What's more compelling is if you can put a human at the, at the forefront, you know, her personal experience, you know, I, I quit my job. I moved to my family. Okay. Now I'm in because I'm human. You're human. I know what that would have taken. Yeah. But you got to be really careful about that. Cause that's a dangerous slippery slope, right? Is that you have to have the idea to back that up because that people, they, they ultimately will stay interested and grounded and connected to you because of the human side of it. But you better be able to bring some information because that's what people want. They don't want to be dazzled or tricked or led by a bunch of sort of like cool stories. At some point, you've got to bring them into the fold of what's real. And what a lot of people get confused with is the idea that you can, I don't want to say fool people, but that you can entertain them into something. And it's like, you can't, you can entertain them so that they pay attention and focus. And today focus actually creates desire. It's the whole study of approach motivation and, and how we're drawn to things. If you can get someone to focus on something, they will start to actually want it. But I will give you my precious attention and focus, but you better bring me some value. And if you don't, I'm out, I'm going off. I'm thinking about picking up my phone and checking my emails. And so Connecting the human side of it and your personal story is fantastic as long as you have the goods right behind it. And that, because that's the thing with her story, right? Right after that, she's like, XRO is a software design company. We make an electronic program module that uses a machine algorithm to communicate directly with an electric motor. We use a technology called coil switching. You know, it's like, it's right, clean, and clear. Like, there's no, there's no more stories to her. She told you why you're there. She told you what the situation is. Now, let me tell you about the company. Bang, we make software. Bang, it talks to an electric motor. We use a coil switching technology. Like, you're, you're, you're on the path. Now she's going to tell you exactly how that coil switching works. Oh, they can change a motor from high speed to high torque on command. Ooh, that's going to be really exciting because, you know, Tesla uses two motors because the motors don't have this technology. Like, those things just then come right after the other. So now I'm going to give you the information. Then once you have that, it's like, all right, now we can discuss. Let's engage. And does that relate to there was something that you said that, that made me really curious that sounds, sounds similar? You had said that if you are passionate about everything, then you are credible about nothing. Oh, and that girl, you are know, speaking my language. Yeah, and that, that razz, razzle-dazzle that you were talking about, you know, you start off with this incredible story. It's highly emotive. And then the rest is just passion but nothing really that i can hang a hook on in it right how do you avoid that pitfall well if you can say if the phrase in your pitch could start with or you could add i think we think we believe this could be that's an opinion and if you're passionate about your opinions you run the risk a very high risk of people judging you instead of your idea and they'll be like wow if he thinks this is the greatest thing ever this guy's an idiot Right. Because we've seen things that are similar. Oh, it's going to take a lot of work. Like it just ruins everything. You can be passionate about facts. You cannot be passionate about opinions because in today's world, we're just very judgmental of that. And you open yourself up unnecessarily to that kind of critique. And it used to happen to me all the time in TV where people will come to pitch me a television show 
And it was probably a bad show that wasn't going to get on the air. Well, by the way, that's most television shows. Like 90% of what I pitched was bad and not going to get on the air. And But when they'd come in the room and they would pitch me a bad idea and they were so excited about how it was going to be a huge ratings hit and that it was going to change the way sponsorship was done in TV and how it was going to be, you know, put this new network on the map. It was like, oh, great. Not a good idea. Not good producers. I'd ask my assistant to make sure they never get in my office again. And that's what you're facing out there, which is people don't want to be told how to feel. They don't want to be told how to think. And if you start with a grand conclusion and then try to back it up, they're going to look to disprove it the entire time. What's your, what's your favorite idea? The, the idea that you felt like you had pitched beautifully that never got made? Oh, my God. I have so many of those. Like, I don't even know where to begin. I have so many of those ideas. There's a million of them. Every single show, basically. Like, think about it. 97 or 98 out of 100 shows don't get on the air. That's the way this world is. I had I had a great show called Power to the People with CBS. That was, imagine what you could do on your own is exceptional. Human beings are exceptional. But imagine if you could control an entire group, an entire army. And we basically give you a hundred people. And the, your competitor has a hundred people. And we give you these unbelievable, outrageous tasks. And the idea is... You have to complete unbelievable over-the-top tasks, controlling like a hundred-person army group. And how are your is your leadership skills? I had the greatest tape on that, the greatest idea. Sold it to CBS. Working with them, we did fun stuff. It was amazing. That's that one. The next one was: imagine you're a terrible chef, and you are now charged in this competition to cook the most complicated, five-star amazing meals. Except for the good news is Bobby Flay and Gordon Ramsay, they're in your ear. And they can see what you see and it's called remote chef. And they're going to remotely talk you through cooking the most fantastic dish ever, right? Couldn't get that one on the air. I got it on the air on as a survival show, but I couldn't get the food version on, which is how I originally designed it. Oh my God, I could go on forever. That actually sounds like my worst nightmare. I've had so many, by the way, my Amazon, that my amazing race for, for the smartest people in the world, not on air yet. You know, we're just, we're struggling to get it through the, the process. This happens all the time. Well, let's just, I mean, we, we haven't finished with the, with the three-minute rule yet. We, we're going to get to how you, close, how you close it to actually elicit action. But I just want to go there just while we're here for a second because, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get knocked back. You're going to get knocked back. So many times it's going to hurt. So many times. And that's just a fact of business, a fact of life, a fact of pitching, anything. But something else that I read that you were talking about is the difference between self-doubt and situational doubt. Oh man, absolutely. That is a tough one. It's been tough for me and I'm getting way better at it now. And how do you, how do you use that distinction to keep you going through the 99 pitches that don't work out? Well, listen, here's the difference. Self-doubt is your brain, your voice telling you to play it safe and that you can't do it. It's trying to keep you in the cave so the saber-toothed tiger doesn't eat you. That's two million years of evolution trying to keep you from doing anything. Situational doubt is when you know something's not right, that it's too difficult, that there's too many hurdles in front of you. And on one hand, you've got people that are, that are handicapped and paralyzed by both those things. And then they never take risks and they go about their lives. But now we've got a new phenomenon that I haven't seen and it's just starting is that with the self-help gurus and the entrepreneurial gurus out there, 
They are telling you at every stage, don't listen to the people who tell you no. Don't take no for an answer. When you think you know you can't do it, just keep trying. Don't take rejection. Just push past that. You know, you got Lady Gaga getting an Oscar, telling her how people told her no and that she couldn't do it, and that she still fought through all the rejection, and there she is. And you're like, well, you're one of the greatest singers of all time, and you had a hard time. Like, why are you telling people who aren't that good that they should keep doing it, right? Situational doubt is so healthy. It's self-preserving. It keeps you from getting involved in something that will ultimately probably not get you there. And what happens is when you get the gurus and then we've been trained to like, forget that doubt. Don't listen to people who tell you no. Then you don't, you can't hear the difference between the two. And so you push it all aside and you delusionally go out at it. And like I, I said in the article, like you've, Everybody knows somebody who owns a restaurant or owned a business that just ran it straight into the ground and lost everything. And the warning signs were everywhere, right? It wasn't about, oh, you can't put in the work. It's like you chose a location that the last nine restaurants have gone down. Like it was obvious, right? And when you learn to quiet the self-doubt, when you learn to accept that that's just part of your brain, it's not real, it's just you, you can actually then hear what the situational doubt will tell you. And then you'll actually be more inclined to believe it and preserve yourself. You'll be like, no, this, the lease terms here aren't really good enough. You know, well, I don't know if this is a really good person to be partnering with. You know, it's like, I don't know if I have the time to do this. Those are really good doubts to listen to. And if you were in the mode of constantly trying to tell yourself that you could still do it no matter what, you'll be like, I don't care if those lease terms aren't favorable to me. I'm going to do it anyways. Well, guess what? Unfavorable lease terms are going to screw everybody. So it's a really good exercise to try to quiet those voices in your head and just those ones and actually listen to the ones that are telling you, hey, there's something wrong here. And so, you know, not focusing on on whether you can do it or not, because if you're committed enough and you're going to put in the work and just take all of that as a given. Yeah. And, and I talk to this about high do. school kids all the time. I was like, listen. Who here's heard you can put it, do anything you can put your mind to? And everybody's put their hands like, really? Could you be Taylor Swift? Could you be LeBron James? Like, no, you can't. The phrase should be anything you can do, put your mind to it. You've got to look for reasonable probability of success. Like, you don't want to be starting a cable TV channel today. You know, you wouldn't want to be a shoe cobbler. Like, there are industries that's like, ooh, yeah, you don't want to be trying to do that. And, but people get the idea that it's just about work ethic and it's just about believing in yourself. It's like, no, that's a huge piece of it. And yes, you need that, but you need to be at least in the right zone where there's reasonable probability of success because otherwise you will do what I've done for many years. And a lot of my friends and people who have a lot of skill will do is they'll get a bunch of things to the one yard line. You get a bunch of ideas really close to success. And getting things to the one-yard line scores zero points. And that's a way a lot of people find themselves in life is they bash themselves into ideas that were just really uphill battles from the beginning and they almost made it. And it's like if you almost make it seven or eight times in different things, it's like maybe you're picking the wrong things. You know, we did a show called Blue Collar Millionaire, which was these people and they made gargantuan amounts of money in these odd jobs. And the one thing they had in common was they picked one thing and they focused on it. And it was something they did well and found success and they just kept doing it, you know? So reasonable probability of success. 
and again, that's something that that I think that should be taught at schools and and isn't. I'm trying. I uh, yeah. try. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch tap. I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna go back to the three minute rule because we we kind of left it at a, at a at a pivotal point there, which is without a close, without an ending, and and that's something that I see. You know, I see over and over again. You you get this really powerful presentation. You get this really powerful idea. I'm in. I. I'll come to the party, tell me where the party is, tell me what I need to wear. And then it just peters out into a nothing. There's no, there's nothing, you don't tell me what to do. You don't give me any idea of what's going to happen next. So there's nothing powerful enough at the end that makes me go, yes. Right. Absolutely. Well, and that's twofold, right? You have two issues there. The first one is how do you actually end a presentation or a pitch? And the second one is, is are you deal ready? And that I find is, is something I haven't seen as much of until lately with the book out, I've seen so much of these people getting out there to pitch stuff and they're not deal ready, which means that meeting's going to end. It's like, great. Yeah. When you get that ready, let me know. It's like, okay, when we get a little bit more things, we should talk again. Yeah. Let's set another meeting when you guys get that through legal. And you're like, okay, you didn't go in there with anything that was concrete to actually happen. So that's the first thing is you got to look to be deal ready and know what you want. I was, I've been terrible at this in my my business because I love meetings. Oh, I'm quick to take a meeting. Oh, I love to sit with people. I give a great meeting, but I would be like, oh, let's take a meeting. And then I have no agenda to actually make something happen. It's just more like we're waving in the park and like, great, good talking to you too. Let's, yeah, we'll talk soon. As soon as we get that done, it's like pff, nothing happens to those. So much better now, but like this is a deal ready meeting. I have an agenda I want out of this and I'm going to put that right in front of them. The second is ending a pitch with anything that's sort of canned and rehearsed is a very bad idea because it pulls the focus away from the engagement that you're having and into the, hey, I've been rehearsing this. Hey, this is a pitch I've rehearsed and done 14 times. So I just wanted to remind you of that at the very end. And that I see a lot because they want to, they come up with some cool phrase, you know? So that's how you catch a ride with a ride hangler, you know, like, you're like, oh, right, yeah, this is something you've been working on. Oh, good work, you know? Whereas a lot of times I'll just have people get to the very core of what they want at the end and just end it. Be like, done. Any questions? Great, I'll answer some questions now. Okay, let's talk about next steps. That's it. We're done. I don't need to say anything more. I've already said all the details. You got it. Let's start engaging. So when you say, you know, just finish and we're done. Obviously that's not, you know, that's not finishing mid sentence. That's not, there's, there's a hook there. There's something at the end that kind of brings it to a conclusion. I usually have people put up their logo and say something like, now I'll take some questions. Let's talk further. Anything that says the part about me pitching you ideas and giving you information has just ended. Now we're taking the next step. So it's literally as clean as let's talk, let's talk about what the next step is. And then it's like, okay, we're done with the pitch. Now we're into the next phase. Cause that's the other thing I got to get people to understand for some reason is like, it's, you can't sell somebody something in three minutes. That's not the way the world works anymore. You know, like there's gonna, we live in a decision by committee environment. Our world has gone decision by committee. Every business, every company, everywhere around the world, I've had this my speech is translated into Mandarin and I'm sitting there waiting for the, for the translation and the room 30 seconds later goes, oh, damn it. Like you could hear the groans as soon as you say decision by committee because everybody understands that now. 
So what happens is, is that as you're pitching these things and you're going through all of these elements, it's like, hey, there's going to be a next step. Somebody's going to have to talk to somebody. You're going to have to take what I said. We're going to have to do another meeting. Someone's going to have to look at this. There's going to be an approval process, whatever. So it's a matter of like, let me get you all the information so we can engage on a higher level so that you're engaging with me from a place of interest, from a place of knowledge that's the most likely I can get to make you buy whatever it is I'm selling. And do you need to, again, my brain's just just kind of all these little misfires going off here because this is is different to to everything that I had learned, which is fantastic. So you don't need to give them kind of lay out a pathway to action. This is how I think we should take this forward. This is how I believe, what I believe the next steps would be. Are you saying that that doesn't need to happen? You open up to questions and let that come out organically? Well, if you have a very specific plan of action, then that is a great close. Here's our next steps, blank, 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 right? If that's your next steps. If it's like, hey, I need you to set this up with the board meeting, then it's like you can just simply state that. The concern is on an ending, people want to sort of like tie it all together with a fancy bow and make it sound all connected. It's like, no, you've already got them the information. Just stop talking. Let's go to the next phase, which is here's how the purchase order system works, you know, or here's the next opening of my schedule if you want to hire me. That's it. And because then they're going to have questions. They're going to want to talk further. They're going to engage, right? And that just ties so beautifully back to what you said at the beginning around not chasing rocks, not creating your own rocks. Yeah, because it's like, okay, we're now we're in engagement. We're in the engagement phase, which means if you want to engage with me, like we're going to know because you've heard the information, you've processed it, you've contextualized it. Now, do you want to actualize or not? Like, yes or no? That's it. That's kind of what you want to know. Do you want to talk further? Do you have questions about what the next steps are? Do you have questions about how something works? Do you want me to go through the patents again? Like, is there something that it intrigues you moving forward? And when you're doing that and you're not getting questions about, oh, wait a minute, but so so how do you guys do that again? Like, I don't understand. Is that, so you're, you're a for-profit company that does this in how many ways? If you're not getting those questions, which most people listening are probably getting that type of stuff at the end, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're moving towards deal. We're moving towards working together. We're moving towards the next level. And then everything in that mode should be towards that end. And also if you are getting those questions, that's amazing feedback, right? Yeah. That that wasn't covered off well enough during the pitch. Oh, I mean, I do a lot of these exercises in the book and one of them is called the telephone test where you're reaching out to people who don't know you and don't know this pitch and you're asking them to pitch it back to you. And so what happens is, is those first words out of their mouth are the most valuable thing you're going to get because that's what's on their mind. That's what came to their mind when they heard this. This is what they thought and it's just real. There's no argument for that. If the person believes this or thinks that or that's what they're saying, that's the impression you gave. And it's wildly frustrating when you pitch something out there and some random person pitches you something back that doesn't have all the elements or is totally misconstrued. But equally, even more so, it's like winning the Super Bowl when, in my game, when the phone rings and it's someone you don't know and they basically pitch you your idea back. It is unbelievably exciting. So lay it out, lay it out clearly. Use your passion, but use your passion with credibility and then stop talking. Yeah. Don't throw oh your God. own rocks. Stop Don't talking. throw your own rocks. Exactly. And here's a, here's a perfect example. 
the more words you use, the less confident you will appear, particularly in today's world. And I'll give you an example. Let's say, Julie, I wanted to come and cater your wedding. And I had a chef, and it was Gordon Ramsay. He agreed to come to your wedding and personally be the chef right there with everybody. How many words would I need to sell you that idea? Probably four. I have Gordon Ramsay, right? I'd be confident. I'd be smiling. I'd be happy because I knew the value I was bringing. Or let's look at it another way. Let's say it was my brother-in-law, ex-convict, just got out of prison, doesn't really cook, has never been a chef, but really needs a job. How many words would I use to try to sell you on that, right? Thousands. I'd be all over the place. I wouldn't have the same level of confidence because the value I'm bringing, I know. Now, it doesn't matter how I present myself. It doesn't matter what I do. You as the audience are going to sniff that out because the number of words I use is a direct relation to the level of confidence I have in my value. And so the more words you use, the more talking you do, you are signaling to your audience where you fit value-wise, somewhere between Gordon Ramsay and my brother-in-law ex-convict. And so when you say less, you can actually get more out of the interaction. I think just to speak to, just before we finish, I think to speak to the resistance to that, it's quite, it's important because there's a story that I that I hear a lot of, and I'm sure you hear a lot of it as well, which is, well, you know, if I have the expertise and I have a great product and, you know, I have all the knowledge and information, I shouldn't have to speak in sound bites. I shouldn't, you know, it's a, it's a That's cheap, right. it's a cheap plot. And I hear it. I was actually, I had a conversation a few days ago with an academic and she's closely tied to politics. And I was saying to her, you know, try as I might during our recent election, try as I might, I could not find a clear, concise, compelling, you know, soundbite on what everybody stood for on each of the core issues. And I looked, and I don't know many people that would have got out of their way to look, I looked and I couldn't find it. And that is such a shame for politics in general, because you end up voting on things such as, oh, I just have a gut feel or oh, I don't like, you know, their hair or something ridiculous. So, and she turned around and said, don't you think that that's dangerous? That dumbing really important things down, such as policy into a soundbite is dangerous. And I said, I think not doing it is dangerous because yeah, we're going to make a snap judgment one way or another. Let's make it on the right stuff. Yeah. And you want information and like, there's two types of sound bites, right? There's the sound bite that is informational and there's the sound bite that's promotional. And you know it, the difference. When someone uses a, a promotional sound bite, it's like, wah, wah, like, yeah, I've heard this. This sounds like a slogan. I just don't buy it. We've been bombarded with media and ads and clickbait and click funnels for so long on so many screens. We're just super, super sensitive. And it's easy to get caught up in that. And when you try to be promotional, Even if it's by accident, people smell that and they are repulsed by it. So what's the difference? What's the core difference? A soundbite of information tells you something of value. A soundbite of promotion tries to influence you to think something. And people just kind of know the difference instinctually right away. It's like, I don't want you to tell me how to feel or what to think or what I should be doing. And think about politics. It's like, think how rebellious we are to those politicians who tell us what our morality is supposed to be or what we're supposed to be offended by. It's like, oh my God, just shut up. Like, that's the way we just instinctively are now because people have been telling us 
and promising us things for so long and they don't deliver. It's like, yeah, I, I don't I don't need you to tell me what to think or do. You used a beautiful example about um, Bernie Sanders getting close to Cardi B. And I just watched, when I read that, I just watched Rhythm and Flow, which is the rap battle documentary that Cardi B's on. Anyone who's not watched it, watch it from a storytelling perspective. It's just beautiful. Um, and my husband and I were talking about, you know, how Cardi B just talks in these sound bites that just nail it and how you can feel them moving through the stratosphere and people picking up on them and, you know, rephrasing them and sending them out further and further and further. She just has this innate skill. And you had said that you've noticed, you know, Bernie Sanders as the political can- candidate getting closer to her to see if he can take advantage of, of that fact that she can soundbite things. Yeah. And if you notice, I mean, the way Bernie Sanders has been over the last six months, it's been far more clear and concise and detailed because he's learning that the the elements that helped Donald Trump cut through with the way he spoke and the way he laid out information was effective because people are just like, oh, I just can't hear you say those political like phrases anymore. They just don't mean anything. Like, could you just tell me what you believe? And like whether you agree with Bernie Sanders or not, like at least you know what he believes and you get it. And it's like, okay, I get it. I don't agree with you, but I get it. Or it's like, I get it. I don't agree with you, but I could agree with you a little bit in these areas. We could work together. We could maybe it's, you know, you can rationalize your connection to him. But everybody else, it seems to be they just haven't figured that piece out. And I did some work in the political landscape, which was not super fun, but it was amazing how like they were were so resistant to the idea of changing the way they spoke. It was amazing how resistant they were. I think just to, just to wrap that, wrap that particular piece up, you know, we, technical language is fantastic and, and it's important that you have the expertise to be able to speak your own technical language, the depth of knowledge, but, you know, when it comes to convincing people, technical language rarely does that. It's your ability to be able to translate that language in the language of the people that you're trying to reach. That's right. And if you're having a technical language conversation with a technician, knock yourself out. But if you're not, you might want to at least get them into the frame of mind so they understand what the hell it is first and how it works. And then you can get technical and you can look at anything, any sort of high tech issue and be like, okay, I just need to understand the basics and the framework, and then we can talk about how these things actually function, and then I might be able to use some of your terminology, and then I might actually understand the function of it. And like, that's the way every pitch should be. It's like, it'd be like trying to explain a science issue or to somebody, how a nuclear reactor works. How would you explain that? Well, first you'd have to explain the basics of it and how the reaction kind of worked and how they contain it, and then eventually you'd actually be talking about isotopes and real technical stuff because they would have a foundation of information and what takes people so I don't know why it's so hard for them to understand that you know a lot of my clients and stuff are getting much better at it but it's like everybody you're going to pitch to is basically starting out as a newbie doesn't understand what you do so you have to build a foundation of information first then you get to do all the fun stuff well my final question and it's it's funnily enough a translation based question is if I, if I gave you a stage, gave you a stage, I know you have access to many. If I gave you a stage and in front of you, I put, you know, every single person that you would want 
to reach or speak to or influence. And I gave you, you know, five minutes. What's the one thing that you would want them to know? I'd only take three, but you know, <laughs> yeah, that was the wrong metric to use, wasn't it? <laughs> I think if I had everybody that I wanted to, I think I would be explaining the core principle behind simplicity, that simplicity is the new sexy and clarity is compelling. If you want to compel people, you need to be clear. And that today's world, the information is the value. You don't need to try as hard. And the audience being as sophisticated as they are, they pick up on all these things. And that's really the core of being able to say less and get more is that someone who has the confidence to state something that they clearly want you to be influenced by, but they have the confidence to say it plainly, without exaggeration, without a bunch of adjectives, adverbs, and let it live on its own. It's very powerful and very compelling. And that's really where the world of marketing and influence is going. It's going to the simplicity and the understated version of things. Because we've tried the overstated and that started to not work at all. Brent, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the, for the book. Um, yeah, just thank you. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.